What is better, uncomfortable truth or comfortable lies? Every truth is a kindness, even if it makes others uncomfortable. Every untruth is an unkindness, even if it makes others comfortable. Glennon Doyle. Hello, hello out there. It's Shara Carruthers, and welcome back to another episode of the Live Like You Love Yourself podcast. And I'm so, so glad you're here for a couple of reasons. So I've just finished reading Untamed by Glennon Doyle, and I found it both inspiring and activating. It's made me think a lot about truth. And I wondered, how do you know when you're hearing or experiencing or living truth? Is there some way that your inner voice signals to you? that this is something you need to pay attention to or take action on? For some time now, I've been focusing on noticing these little indicators. For me, it's often a feeling of chills or an unexplained warmth, not hot flashes, (laughs) or a sensation that just feels like yes. What is it for you? Do you listen? Have you always listened? Or is it something that's come over time? If you're game, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And so I'll put a link in the notes to drop me an email if you're interested in sharing your your experiences. And as you might have guessed, I'm a big believer in inner knowing. And I think it's the challenging times when we need it the most. But like any relationship, we have to work on it a little bit every day to get to the level of trust needed to have it nourish and guide us. That trust needed to have us believe. And that leads me to our guest for today, Caitlin Katie. Holy moly, this woman is a force of nature in every sense of the word. So I first met Caitlin when I had the opportunity to interview her on the subject of meditation. And I knew from the minute that we started talking that she was someone with an amazing, amazing amount of truth and goodness to share. And I turned out to be right. Caitlin is many, many things, not least of which include a meditation junkie, a mama of three, and the author of the book, Heavily Meditated, and the designer of the app that goes along with it. She's a bold and brave and oh-so-beautiful trailblazer who has wisdom that is so far beyond her years and whose essence is simply impossible to capture in words, which is why I'm really glad that you're going to have the opportunity to hear this warm and juicy conversation that we had with her. And so please enjoy this beautiful chat that Maria and I had with Caitlin Katie. Caitlin, I feel like I have to have met you. You look so familiar. Have you ever met me before? Not that I can remember. No. Are you American okay. too? Yes, I am. We're all American. How cool. I know. Isn't where, that weird? Where do you live? Lennox Head. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. I feel like I never meet Americans. Like, really? Right. Well, I just feel like so many people are Canadian. 
Oh yeah, yeah, true. And like yeah. the North Americans, maybe because they like are more keen on travel than Americans generally are. But yeah, yeah. Um, I always get really excited when I meet my fellow countrymen. Yes. Exactly. And where did you start? Where were you originally? Like, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in. I was born in Kansas City, and then mm-hmm. moved to Oregon when I was a young girl and grew up on a ranch there um, until about middle school, high school, and then kind of went back and forth between there and St. Louis. Um, and then went to uni in the Bay Area of California. And then- Oh, really? Where? Uh, California College. Of, well, now it's called California College of the Arts. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So my degree is in fine arts. Oh, really, wow. Really well, that would explain how your website just looks so, it's so beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's thank really you. lovely. Yeah. yeah I it's really interesting because I studied book arts, um, like printmaking and book arts. Mm-hmm. I was trained as a printmaker and it was one of those things where I graduated and I was like, what did I just do for four years? Like, <laughs> gonna, you know, like, what am I going to do? Um, and, you know, however many years later this is now, um, it's, it's just so funny how it's so full circle and I made a book baby, you know, like I make, mm-hmm. I'm married word and image and that's my you know that's my career of choice and um, it's just funny how those things don't make sense at the time or they seem so impractical and yet they become you know such a part of your life so yeah and what about I know Chara where you've told me from California yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. and Maria where are you New York City I grew up yeah wow and how long Mm -hmm. have you been here 26 years Wow. Yeah. And yeah. What, brought, what brought you to Australia? I married an Australian. And you? Uh, I I married a half Kiwi. So we were right. in oh. before and then we moved over here. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. right. And That's- so we may as well dive in because I'm wondering, so are you, are you, I, ah. <laughs> Are you are you even a yoga teacher or are you a main are you a meditation teacher? Yeah, no, I yes, yes. I mean, I I don't even really call myself a, a teacher, although it's one of those things that I'm like, it is what I do. Um, yeah. But but yes, I I'm doing my yoga teacher training certification, but I'm doing it with Rod Stryker, so it's like a, okay, it's a very long, long. arduous process so yeah. it's like a 200 a typical 200 hour yeah um so I've been working on that for four years um just because I you know I'm doing it in between my other work and kids and all of that so so then That's cool. I so then ha- where did medication I love this can mm. I just say I really love this because there th- in so many ways there feels like there's this set path of how yeah. you discover these things and every once in a while I find somebody who's like come out of nowhere like who's who's was like a bhakti yogi for you know five years and never did asana ever and then all of a sudden was like oh yeah there's something else to do so I really want to hear like how did where did meditation come from? How did you discover it? Yeah, well, um, you probably already know this, Chara, but you know, meditation was something that I, it felt like it was my last resort choice because um, mm-hmm. I had chronic Lyme disease for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I was just given sort of a life sentence that I'd be ill forever. And I had done all of this sort of alternative things because Western medicine had just sort of said, sorry, you're on your own. Um, and I had, I had, you know, had some success with doing alternative, you know, therapies and things like that. But I think that I reached 
for meditation because I had been told so many times, this will be so good for you. This will be so good for you. And I was finally like, I think this is like the la my last resort. You know, I just have to try this because I don't want to be sick for the rest of my life. And I started listening to Tara Brock, mm -hmm. um, her podcast and doing meditation with her. And that was my entry point. And as it turned out, you know, meditation actually changed my life and was the last piece of the puzzle that I feel helped me heal from chronic Lyme disease and a history of disordered eating and depression and, you know, all of these things that I'd sort of brought into this chronic illness picture. Mm. So that was, that was how I got started. And I was, you know, as far as yoga goes, it's been in my, it's been in my awareness for, you know, most of my life. I was a ballerina, quite a serious ballerina as a young girl and was in a, you know, a, a company. And so um, they had us do some like yoga and Pilates, but it was really more about, you know, flexibility and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And then at 17 years old, I withdrew from high school. I had enough credits to graduate early from high school, but it was really important to my mom that I do the ceremony and walk. So instead I withdrew for the first semester of my senior year and went and lived in Varanasi. Oh in my India. goodness. And by uh, yourself. I went with, I convinced this college program to let me come um, and do, so what they did is they set you up with a family to live with and then helped you sort of facilitate like an independent study of your choice. So I, um, and then we did classes together. Like we learned, we did Hindi classes and, you know, sort of philosophy classes and things. And I um, taught in a school, I taught English in a school for, um, you know, kids and, um, and I wrote a thesis on the semiotics of Hindu marriage ornament, which is very obscure. <laughs> At 17? I That's amazing. Wow. Well, you know, India had always been sort of something. I was, it was this place that had always captivated me because my dad traveled in the 70s. He um, taught in, in Africa and then took a boat to India with my older brother, who's you know 13 years older than me. So he was, um, he was quite young at the time and they traveled through India and Nepal and Afghanistan and all of these places. And so we had all these photographs in my, in my house growing up of, you know, these places. And my dad talked a lot about, you know, he had me reading Siddhartha mm -hmm. at the age of, you know, nine or 10. So it was, it was a place that felt in some ways very familiar. Hmm. Um, but that was kind of, I think, my first experience of yoga in its most traditional form. Mm -hmm. uh, but I sort of went, I got more interested in yoga later as a way of deepening my meditation practice, which I think is the inverse of a way a lot of people approach, you know, it's usually asana is their way in and then they're like skipping out on meditation at the mm -hmm. end. And I certainly did that in the very beginning, but um yeah asana has been a way of uh you know i think of asana and pranayama as like foreplay to meditation so mm -hmm. that that's that was why i became interested in it yeah. can you say more about that <laughs> i think the chart was like oh because yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like how why how does how did it help you deepen your meditation well my teacher rod striker says that you know, asana affects your past, pranayama affects your present, and meditation affects your future. And so, 
my experience of that is very true in that I feel that we're, you know, we're clearing mm-hmm. through our asana practice. Mm-hmm. We're building and directing energy in pranayama. And then, you know, meditation is very much about sort of, mm. for me anyway, this, that's the, the, you know, the ultimate expression of yoga to me is just this, this communion with the divine that, that you can experience through meditation and this, you know, seeing the truth of yourself and, Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it just, I mean, on a practical level, it's so much easier to meditate if you've done at least pranayama, but ideally asana and pranayama. And I think it's such a shame when people are like only doing the asana because I'm like, you guys, like you're missing the climax. Like, (laughs) like you only stayed for the previews. You didn't stay for the feature film, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's been, you know, the, what I've been taught, but also what I've experienced. I'm, I'm really, I'm, well, yeah, first of all, that's amazing. And I, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I think a lot of folks, because they don't engage in the meditation aspect, they don't necessarily know what they're missing and they don't necessarily get a sense of how these things work together. Mm-hmm. But the question that's there for me is right back to being in Varanasi at the age of 17 and what, impressions that left on you and for me India has always been about it's it has this revelatory uh energy to it it shows you the humanity in every messy beautiful aspect and I just wonder like at that such a young age what what were your impressions what were your what were your initial impressions of actually being there and then what impressions were you left with yeah, I think in awe, you know, mm-hmm. in awe, and especially coming from America, um, just the, you're just, when you go to a place like India, you're so aware of how ancient everything mm-hmm. is. And, mm-hmm. you know, that this is one of the world's most ancient, continually existing civilizations. And that was jaw dropping to me. But I think just the reverence, you know, the reverence of the everyday and the way that the, that reverence is just interwoven into these sort of like, you know, quotidian sort of things mm-hmm. in everyday life yeah. that um, that was remarkable to me. And like you said, the, you know, looking all aspects of life in the eye, you know, having dead bodies, you know, sort of paraded through the streets and seeing, especially in a place like Varanasi, you know, it's so traditional in so many ways, especially this was, I was 17, I'm 38 now. So it was that 21 years ago. It was, you know, I'm sure it's very different now, but it was very traditional. And um, so that was, you know, that was, it was incredible. And yet I had more culture shock going home. Yeah. I remember being like arriving into LAX in like my salwar kameez with like my henna. And (laughs) um, and, like, I remember going into the ladies room and just being like, holy cow, like everything was just so sterile and clean. And, Mm. and just, I don't know, just the way that it just had such a different energy. And then I had to go back to high school. So I had to go back for another semester of like high school in America after, you know, living in Varanasi for four months. So it was definitely a trip. And I definitely, you know, I think that it, um, 
it, like I said, I, I think it was harder for me actually to come back than it was to integrate into it, but completely life-changing. Yeah. And again, an, a very intuitive decision, you know, like why India, um, other than the fact that it was sort of, you know, in my awareness growing up, I had other options. There was Greece, there was, you know, going to universities in the UK, like there were all of these other options that I could have explored, but um, I'm so glad that, you know, that I did choose that because I think even now I look back and maybe the things that I didn't fully integrate as a 17 year old Hmm. now, as I navigate, you know, adulting and, you know, Hmm. being in this phase of life where you're encountering more, more, you know, death and despair and, you know, heartbreak and these, these things that we all encounter as, as time goes by, I feel in some ways more like there's, I have this awareness or familiar familiarity with it because of what I witnessed Hmm. all those years ago. Hmm. So are there other, other aspects as well of the, uh, the feeling or I, I always think of living in India as a practice in part because of that reverence that you talk about. There's this, there's this observance of things, not just doing things. It's, it's, and I wonder, has any of that, has any of that left been left with you or do you know, are you aware of any of that that's still there for you? Yeah. I mean, it's such a sensory experience, isn't it? And so I think certainly the sounds, the smells for better or for worse, Yeah, (laughs) you know, the tastes, the flavors, the, and all of the little tiny rituals, you know, that's, I think that that is, and just the steps that it takes to do things and the patience, like you said, it is a practice. It's like, if you want to get from point A to point B, it's a whole lot, you know, it's, it's, it is a process. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I think certainly just there's this depth of texture to life there that is inimitable in so many ways, you know, you can't replicate it, but I think in some ways that's, you know, what we seek to do um, through our practices and through the bells and whistles that we bring in is, you know, recreating this sort of, you know, I don't know, there's something about India that feels like it's incredibly challenging Mm -hmm. and it's incredibly, it feels like a homecoming in Mm -hmm. a way. Um, and I think that, you know, there's so many of those like homecoming aspects that we, you know, I know over time I'm like, oh, and now I'm interested in Ayurveda and, and here's meditation here in Asana. And you start to bring in these aspects that made you feel held and have a sense of sort of integrity and wholeness, um, in that experience in India. Does that make sense? Totally. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, so, I liked what. Sorry, I liked what you no, said about the reverence of of daily life, and I think even no matter how corrupt things are, and no matter how crazy things are, everybody kind of knows that there's something bigger going on. And the culture mm-hmm. shock of coming home is that people don't seem to really you're like it isn't about the Black Friday sale, or it isn't <laughs> about you know that is nothing. So there's a, a depth to it, which I guess you alluded to, and then it is it's so interesting to hear how you're 17 and you, and you absorb it. And then you now a householder with your own children and all that stuff. So it, it's like those lessons just keep peeling off or coming in or whatever that verb is. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I think that's definitely true. And um, I mean, isn't that like our journey with yoga in general, you know, it's, 
I think this idea of um, integrating and integrating and integrating over and over and over again and mm. being this sort of perpetual student. Mm. You know, I know that was something that you guys were, you know, interested in and talk about in your podcast is just um, that like, wh- what's your relationship to the knowledge of yoga? And I, I think for me, it's this, my relationship is that I'm just a forever student. And in some ways, I'm just always that 17 year old girl, you know, plopped in the middle of Varanasi going, I'm, I'm always teachable. I'm always curious. I'm always willing. And I think that that's just such an empowering way to live our lives because it's, you know, it's really antithetical to this tendency we have towards, I need to know everything. I need to be everything. I need to be a perfectionist Mm -hmm. and you know I think the truth is that perfectionism makes us you know really fearful and unforgiving with ourselves and others and inflexible and joyless and so um, for me showing up as a student showing up as that sort of wide-eyed 17 year old um, in a whole new world you know that brings a level of reverence with it and and I think exposes us to more the joy that's that's found through this this deep reverence for learning and for life and for unraveling its mysteries mm-hmm. so um, yeah I think you know, yoga is so much about, uh, for me anyways, like it's an unlearning, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's, it's not, ju- it's not so much a learning as an unlearning and helping us really understand our true nature so that we're seeing, we're not seeing the world and ourselves through this like veil of, you know, illusion and misconception. So, and mm. I think, you know, it breaks us open, um, over and over and over again. And that's why I love things that are practices because you get to keep showing up, even if you feel like you got it wrong in this minute or this hour or this day or this year, you get to show up again. And yeah, I think about that as like, I want to be reincarnated many, many times in this lifetime. Mm. Yeah, and I think right. that, you know, that co- perpetual unfolding that it's so exciting to me. Mm. So you just get to be an explorer. You do have that quality of openness because when you go somewhere where you're 17, you actually don't have much to unlearn. Like you have a little bit of cultural stuff, and, mm. but you're at an age, you're really open to influence, mm. be it bad or good. So you went so kind of uh, ready and spongy and, and ready to absorb. And if you've kept that, that's just such a beautiful quality, the way you talk about your practice. Well, thank you. So have there been challenges? Like... <laughs> Have you, I mean, obviously there have been challenges, but yeah. sort of um, obstacles or stucknesses where you felt that that process of being open got a little constricted? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, I came back, had culture shock and then went to university and promptly uh, developed an eating disorder and depression. So <laughs> kind of immediately, I, you know, like this, I love this idea of spanda, right? Like, yeah. And contract, expand, contract. And so after that huge expansion, I really contracted. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then for many years was, it was sort of just like one thing after another, it was mononucleosis and then it was dengue fever. And then it was, it was um, Lyme disease. So I contracted big time. Um, and, and, you know, I think that I look, I think that's part of what makes me so passionate about sharing tools that help us feel better, which I think, you know, yoga and meditation are 
for me, those sort of core critical tools um, is that I wish these were things that I had known about then. You know, I wish these were tools that had been made accessible to me then, because even though I'm open, even though I'm curious, um, even though I'm, you know, I think I have, I was raised in a family where, you know, these kinds of um, counterculture at the time ideas were welcome. Um, I still found it hard to find my way to them. I still found it hard to get to find the entry point that made sense for me as a 18, 19, 20, 21 year old, you know, person. And, um, and, you know, these things, I guess they just unfold in their own time. But I think that's part of what makes me so passionate about sharing um, what I've learned is I want to help other people feel better. And I don't want to make it, I don't want it to be so hard for people to access the tools that really have been life-changing for me. Mm. Um, I wonder, <clears throat> I, the, I wonder Lyme disease for ten, 10 years. Was it 10 years you said? Yeah. yeah. What? From this, you know, stepping out now, you're in this sort of kind of hindsight place a little bit and able maybe to think about or look back on that experience. What was that experience like? Was that something that you were acutely aware of at every moment of the day? And then what kind of, I don't know, mindset or just resilience or whatever it is, what did it take to kind of make your way or navigate your way through that on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely something that was present every day. And, you know, in the beginning, it was pretty debilitating. And then, you know, I think I was, at the time, I was living in the Bay Area. Um, and so I had access to, you know, Chinese medicine and, you know, homeopathy and that kind of thing. And then moved to Seattle, where I worked with an amazing um, naturopathic doctor who had studied at Bestier there. And so I was, you know, I was lucky that I had access um, to the right people and, you know, the financial resources to, to, to work on it. Right. So it was definitely progressive. It got better, but, um, but no, it was, it was totally debilitating. And I had, you know, all of these things would ha that happened in my body that I'd never experienced before. And, um, and I think just this, this feeling of like, um, uh, you know, not feeling well, like ever, mm -hmm. not feeling fully well ever. And I think that that's part of what makes me so, um, I guess, dedicated to doing the things that do make me feel well mm. um, is because I know what it feels like to wake up every day and feel crap. Mm. <clears throat> um, and, and as far as like the resilience in terms of sticking with it and not giving up, I mean, I'm just... I've got a lot of fire in me. I'm clearly, I'm Kitta, I'm redheaded, I'm Aries. Like I have all of the fire. And so I think that that stubbornness and that mm. determination, um, you know, has its advantages. It certainly mm. has its disadvantages. But, um, you know, I, I just, I have had this theme in my life of people telling me about the way things are done and, and, and just going, well, that may be true but I'm going to do it. I'm going to explore it anyway and see what happens. And um, again, maybe it's just that openness and that curiosity. And I think, you know, going, well, I noticed that when, when I eat these foods or I do these sort of things in my life, I feel this way mm. and, and paying attention to those and being my own sort of science experiment. Um, yeah. I love that.
Mm. I think it's, first of all, that so comes true in everything about you. And it's, and it's really inspiring too, you know, because I think from what I know from working with people and, and from my own experiences as well, we get to this point, I think, when, when we've got challenges where perhaps we start to get a little numb to it or we start to think, well, hell, this is just who I am, I guess, you know? And it just, it can take that little bit of something. Was there any point at which you said, okay, you know, I mean, it sounds like you had been working on it for a while anyway, but was there any sort of pivotal point or at which you just sort of said, I'm so, so, so done with this? Yeah, I, I, there were two points. One with, with uh, my experience of depression. And I, you know, I preface this by saying, I know this isn't the case for everyone, but for mm. me, it was one morning I remember waking up and just having this sort of light bulb moment of like, I have to wake up and make the choice to feel good every day. Mm. That's a choice for me that I am either contributing to feeling good or I'm contributing to feeling like crap. And what no, like, you know, I know this isn't the case for everyone, but, um, you know, and I was medic, you know, I, I had been on medication and this wasn't like, this isn't like a self-diagnosed depression. It was mm. like clinical depression. And, but yeah, the, there was this moment where I took my power back and I went, I appreciate the drugs. Like I appreciate that they provided a bridge for me, mm. but there was a point where I went, I just have to, I have to take, I have to be responsible. I have to take responsibility for my life and I need to reclaim my agency and I need to wake up every day and make a choice. And that moment was life-changing. And it's funny how those, like those moments, I, they're just, they're crystal clear. Mm -hmm. And I also remember having that experience with Lyme disease of just going, and that was, that was my, you know, meditation, you know, people say, come to Jesus. It was like the come to, <laughs> come to meditation moment for me <laughs> of like, I, I'm either going to be sick for the rest of my life or I'm going to be well. And, you know, it was this unraveling of this overachievement and being in my, you know, spending all the time in my, you know, sympathetic nervous system and being in fight or flight mode constantly and, um, and being, you know, a perfectionist overachiever that what I really believe was contributing to my body couldn't heal because I was never in the parasympathetic nervous system. I was constantly, mm -hmm you know, on alert and hypervigilant. So I remember that. Yeah. I mean, I remember those moments and just feeling like this is my choice. This is my choice. And what am I going to do? And both of them were like, you know, whenever you're faced with that, it's like, it's never the fun option, right? No, that's so true. Either you can eat ice cream all day and watch soap operas or, you know, like it's never the fun thing. It's always the yeah. thing that takes dedication and, and a commitment to practicing the thing. Mm. with every moment in every moment and every choice and every you know that it's yeah. it becomes this way of living I think and talk to us about your pathway out of this because yeah. from people you know I'm, I meditate <laughs> for folks who meditate or who've tried these things we know that it can be just as bumpy a roller coaster ride as anything else you know it's I can imagine that you know from the day you started meditating you weren't fixed the next day or the next week. So let, talk to us a little bit about what this path out has looked like for you. Well, I mean, initially, um, you know, I just, I just had to do it for a while. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I just had to do, I just had to I do it. And I think that what I learned in that were these sort of 
guiding principles of things that were really useful in me setting up a, a regular practice, one of which is have a clear why about why you're showing up. Because if your why is very compelling and it's personal, it's not like something you read on Google. If it's a personal, and usually, you know, there's, there's a, it's usually a pain point in your life. Mm. Usually something that feels out of alignment with, with, you know, you feeling like you're living to your full potential or you valuing the things that are most important to you. Um, if you can articulate that, you're on the right track. And so that for me was sort of a critical piece of beginning to have um, a practice of substance, which was just showing up regularly because I was really clear about why I was showing up. And I believe the benefits show up if you do. Mm. So I just kept showing up. I just, because it was like, it was this or, or what I was kind of out of options. Right. Mm. Um, and I mean, I think that it, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline, but it probably was, um, you know, maybe a year and a half into a regular practice that um, things really shifted. And I had a blood test done, maybe it was like eight or nine years ago now, because it was just before I was, you know, pregnant with my first child and um, it came back negative for Lyme disease. So it is miraculous. Mm. Um, and yet it's not like, you know, and yet it's, it's, it's doable. Um, but from there it was like, okay, this works. <laughs> I gotta keep, I gotta keep going, you know? And I think, um, from there, these, all of these other benefits started to show up for me. And I, and I became really interested in exploring ways to deepen my practice. Um, and that's not to say I'm like levitating these days. <laughs> You know, it's just like, how can I, how can I continue to like bring this curiosity and, um, and, you know, this desire for mastery over time to the practice. Um, but you know, there's so many, uh, the way I like to talk about it is I had this one major benefit, right. Of healing. And yet there's this whole field of wildflower benefits that just popped up without me even sort of being aware of them or, or recognizing them, you know, I think creativity and a deeper sense of, you know, self-trust and connection to intuition and more courage and more compassion and more patience. And all of these things that come along with a regular practice have showed up for me and the gifts don't stop, Mm -hmm. you know, they just don't stop. And, you know, I think that's how, for me, that's how I know my practice is working is not just because I was able to heal um, and not just because, you know, I think we have these obvious moments where you feel like you're expanding into your potential, you know, you feel like you're showing up as your best self. And I talk a lot about that because I think that's what so many of us are seeking is this idea that we can live to our full potential. Um, So when I look at, you know, when I can sense that like my soul is able to shine through the BS, like that feels like my practice is working when I'm, you know, not, not letting self-doubt override my self-belief when I'm not, you know, um, when I'm not sort of sitting on my gifts, Mm. those, those are great indications. Um, But I also think that, you know, it's easy to talk about being our best selves when things are going well. Um, but I think the evidence that my practice works 
is not just in the glittery side of things, but also, you know, the most compelling moments are in the darkest and most challenging times in life. Like to me, that's maybe not the thing we talk about so much when we talk about benefits, but to me, it's like how we show up when we're winning is okay. That's easy. If we show up as like the best version of ourselves when we're winning, that's a piece of cake. But how do we show up when, when, when we just are losing? Like, how do we show up when shit hits the fan and life feels out of control or you're staring grief in the eye or, you know, like how are you showing up then? And I think these are the moments that the evidence of our practice shows up or doesn't. And I look at people and who are like, you know, devoted yogis or yoga teachers or meditation teachers. And I see the way that they carry themselves in times of uncertainty or times of confrontation or, and it's fascinating to watch mm. because you really get a sneak peek into like, ah, is your practice working for you? And like, you know, like, yes, you do. You do. You, do, you so do. Oh, you do. Like it's so, one thing to be charming and charismatic on stage, but like, what, what are you, what are you like when, you know, when things are hard? Mm. Um, and I think, you know, in general, it's just like, are we able to navigate those things with more, a deeper sense of stability? You know, are we able to bring a greater sense of grace into those experiences? And it doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we always get it right. It just means that, you know, we find our center more and more often. And for me, what it's felt like is that I have this greater capacity for life. So I have this greater capacity to, to use my gifts and to shine and to be a, like a, a nice person to be around in the good times, but also that I have this ability to be with like the hard parts of life, the dark parts, the failure, the, the you know, death. Like that was a really big one for me in the last couple of years. I lost my younger brother really suddenly. And boy, I tell you what, like there has never been a time in my life where I've been more grateful for my practice, hmm. never. Because I was able to hold space for other people. I was able to navigate the most challenging experience of my life mm. with, with grace and with compassion for myself and, and for others. And that, that was a moment that I was really proud of, you know, I mean, it wasn't just a moment. It was, you know, many, 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 many months, but, and it continues, but I think it's, it's actually those moments where, you can kind of look, you see the reflection of your practice. Mm, yeah, I think one of my, isn't it one of our, one, is it Ranju and Dave or one of our favorite teachers sort of says like the, 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 the measure of your practice is you can see it in your relationships. Yeah, Does Rod say that? He says the measure of your practice is the quality of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I just... Desi Kachar talks about relationships. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. it's just so true. And I love hearing that because and, uh, honest, I feel like that's what this podcast is really about kind of revealing too. And so I do really love hearing that from you. That's exactly. The question is what happens when the shit hits the fan? Cause it's, cause all the rest of it, I agree with you. It's all glittery and lovely. And it, it, it is, you know, I was going to ask you for an example. And of course you gave such a, a sad Gorgeous. and perfect one. Yeah. Because getting hit from, from left field as life does. Yeah. And, and so did you have specific practices like when that happened and you absorbed this horrible news? Yeah. What did you do? 
do, do, is there something like, like, is there a place you go in your practice? Well, I actually, I actually meditated like mm. right away. Um, yeah. I was, it was really interesting because there was someone who happened to be at my house um, at the time that I got the call and I was the first person in my family to get the news. So mm. um, I then had to call my parents, but before I did that, um, you know, I had to, I had to take a minute um, and gather myself. And this person said to me, this friend of mine said, go meditate. And I was honestly the best advice that I could have been given because not just for trying to find my center, mm. but for, and maybe this is going to be a little esoteric for people, but I felt like I connected with my brother at that moment and that he was able to sort of, we were able to, to interface in that moment. And, um, that was a really, that was very special to me. That being said, in the days that followed, my nervous system was a mess, you know, mm. it was total shock. And it was really, what was, what was really surprising to me, um, was how, how somatic and how physical grief is. Mm. I had no idea. I thought it was like a feeling and a thought and a, this like conceptual thing, boy, it was, my body, it was in my body. It was, you know, it was so, so physical. And, um, and so, you know, I broke out the, the box breathing and, you know, pranayama, like things that I could use to sort of downregulate my nervous system. Um, I called our friend Scott Lyons mm -hmm. and, you know, got support with just sort of the somatics of it, because that was, that was definitely a time where I was like, wow, this is, this is huge. And actually to, to come back to find my center again, I needed support um, because it was, it knocked me around, but I stayed with my practice, you know, I showed up and I, I'm grateful that, you know, that was sort of my first experience of like meditating through trauma. Mm. Um, and it, I think it helped me find, you know, be, be able to kind of relate to the experience that many people must have when they sit and get still. Um, Cause it can be kind of, you know, confronting or, or difficult um, with when you're, when you're navigating grief like that. So, yeah, um, I think those are, you know, it's for me, it was just like damage control on the nervous system initially. Mm. So and writing is always my alchemical process. You know, I think yoga is a form of alchemy and um, <clears throat> writing is another practice that has served me well in that, in, in being able to alchemize difficult experiences and turn them into gold, you know? Hmm. Love that. It's, it's, in many ways, I feel like over the last year and some might say four, uh, we've, we've all been ex having this experiences of these sort of mini traumatic experiences and when you talk about that, when you talk about this, you know, tra trauma with the big T experience that you had, um, it made me think about how so many of us are experiencing, you know, grief relative to we're grieving the way we used to be or grieving the life that we used to, to live, maybe a little bit less so here in Australia, but definitely, you know, in this in the US and, and around the world. And it's really interesting to hear those those insights and to think about meditation as a, um, as a tool for managing those sorts of things. Because I, I think we, we don't, 
<clears throat> excuse me, and we don't necessarily think about meditation as a, um, I mean, those of us who practice and who, who teach maybe do, but I don't know if, if folks out there, general folks out there would be thinking, oh, I'm going to just sit and just be quiet in part because there's a fear about being with, you know, being with yep. this, this trauma. And so I appreciate that you've shared that with us. And were there any other kind of insights about that, that you might want to, just about that experience of using meditation as a, as a as a tool, I suppose, for. Okay. Well, I mean, I think the bigger thing and this sort of circles back to Varanasi, I would do want to circle back earlier, like later to the, to your point about the stillness and what's yeah. waiting for us there. Cause I think it's universally important to, to notice that, but, um, meditation. Okay. When my brother passed away, of course I go, why? He was 34. Why? Why now? What does this mean? What is, I don't, this doesn't make sense. Like it's nonsensical when you lose someone that young. Right. And, um, and you look for the meaning in it and you look for like, why this isn't fair. Why him? Da, 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 da. The thing that helped me so much that I really attribute to my experiences that I've had in meditation is this sense of you know, being a drop in the ocean divine and being able to tap into that and have some kind of recognition of, I have a sense of what he, where he is, where mm. he's gone or what he might, what his soul might be experiencing mm -hmm. in this liminal space between lives or, you know, however you, however you want to frame it. Mm. There was some part of me that was served so very well by this idea of, um, I kind of know where you're going. I've gotten a glimpse of that. Like I've gotten a, a glimpse of this, this, you know, idea of that when we leave this life, where do we go? Mm. I subscribe to this idea of reincarnation clearly um, <laughs> because I think it's, well, there's really no surprise there. Cause I'm like a do over. A chance <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> um, but, but that really, that on a sort of spiritual level, mm really served me. And, um, and I think in some ways has made me even more passionate about, man, I've got this one life to live. I've got this soul that's here for this purpose. And, um, I don't know how long I've got, I hope it's a long life because I have much that I'd like to do. And, um, and yet, you know, when we have this sense that we are bigger than this life and this body, and when we can experience that in meditation, even if it's just this, you know, I've always thought it's very ironic that we get like, for me anyway, in meditation, it's like, you know, the little peak, the little peak window, you're just like, you get the like, part, the curtains and you peek in and mm -hmm. what you're peeking into is infinite. Mm -hmm. So it's this like ironic sort of juxtaposition of like, you're getting a glimpse of something that is so vast that you can't even comprehend it. And so that was really comforting to me. Mm. It, yeah. In that time of, of not uh, my logical mind could not understand this just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to lose people before mm. they've, you know, reached an old age. It's just mm. bizarre. So mm. I think that's another, you know, maybe more spiritual, less practical, but served me very well. Um, and and in that way, I feel like, you know, death has been an initiation. And, um, and I also really recognized that 
what I witnessed in Varanasi all those years ago of, again, the way that death was brought out into light and it was a part of everyday life and that you would see, you know, bodies and the funeral pyres were there to be seen. And, you know, ones that had, you know, family members that had passed over were, were, you know, there was space held for them in, in the home and all of these things I now understand are so incredibly helpful um, in navigating grief as someone who's still here on earth, because I've noticed that in our culture, you know, I think Ameri Western culture, American, Australian, we don't actually have a lot of um, really potent rituals around grief. You know, mm. there's not a lot of permission to grieve. People feel uncomfortable about it, both being bereaved and encountering someone who's bereaved is really uncomfortable. So I learned a lot about that too and how important and special it is to hold space for people um, and not try and fix their grief or not try and placate them with like, oh, you were lucky to have him or he's in a better place now. That may be true, mm. but you know, just again, bringing reverence to it and holding space and making grief, allowing it to become a practice in a way in your life, because it is something that just becomes a living, breathing part of you, I think. So that is a beautiful invitation to those of us who are experiencing grief on a much, much lower and, and even I hesitate to say, but more kind of a simpler level mm. is just let it in, let it through, see it as, you know, I love that so much. I really do. Cause there's this, there's this resistance to it. There's this like clinging to the way things were and, in, in, in doing that, we are prolonging, intensifying this experience of grief. There's this, there's this fear, like when you talked about the vastness, there's this fear of the vastness. And when, I, when you were talking about that, I thought, oh my goodness, I've had those deep experiences in meditation. And the experience of the vastness is warm and it's beautiful. And it's, and it's, it's, this, it's calming, it's not scary. And, and it can transform you. So I definitely get that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yes, I think, you know, grief is an invitation to be vulnerable also. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really noticed I was not comfortable with at all. Yeah. Um, and that was a great gift. You know, I think these, these experiences in life, challenges offer us an opportunity for catharsis and for like shape shifting, you know, I had this, I had a similar experience, you know, in becoming a mother where it's a rite of passage. Nobody can sort of tell you, Hey, here's how you're going to feel. Oh, yeah. And you know, it's just like, Holy shit. Which is <laughs> um, and my experience with, with, with death, with grief, the loss of my brother was very much the same where it was just this like initiation. And I've always thought, you know, with motherhood, it's an initiation that many of us are not awake to hmm. and we miss the transformation you know I've written in the past about like this um why are we so obsessed with this postpartum transformation like of whether we got our abs back like we're missing the point you know the transformation that's on offer here is so much bigger than your abs and it's you know it's the same with um with death is like if we are awake to these challenges if we can be with them with this with a sense of stability a sense of grace wow there's so much 
awakening and transformation and shedding of layers that can happen within that, but it invites us to be vulnerable. It breaks us down. And I think that, you know, that's something, one of the reasons I really like to share my experience with that is because I want it to be an invitation to people to tell the truth about your life, tell the truth about your experience, because shame is the enemy of change. Mm. And whether it's on a personal level or a collective level, I don't believe that great change can happen within ourselves or within our communities when shame is present. And I think there's a lot of shame around being vulnerable, around grief, around trauma. And I think we should all be talking about it more because that eliminates the whole, the veil of shame. So, Which brings us back to what you were going to say about stillness and, and, and how, why it's difficult. Cause you're, you're kind of honing in on what is the fear of coming into stillness? And it's often, I don't know, maybe you can keep go further, but it's that peeling that open. It's scary, but why is it scary? What about it is scary to come into stillness? Well, I think because of what's waiting there for us or mm. what's not waiting there for us. Right. I think so many of us, I know in my own experience that, you know, one of my biggest resistances to meditation was um, I don't have time for that. I do not have time to sit and do nothing for 20 minutes. And I really wore busyness as a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I think that's a superficial resistance. And underneath that resistance is really this idea of, Um, well, I have to hustle up my sense of self-worth and by achieving, I'm earning a sense of self. And, you know, the irony of that, of course, is that when we actually can dig in and sit in stillness, we're like, I'm already enough. Like I'm already, I'm, I'm a drop in the ocean divine. Like I'm good. I don't, I don't like, I don't need that to-do list. You know, I'm already whole. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, but so many of us never actually reach that point because we get stuck in the resistance of either I'm afraid of what's waiting there for me, which is nothing because nothing makes me uncomfortable because I can't actually achieve and fill this hole of unworthiness with tasks and, you know, consuming things or ticking boxes, or, you know, we have to look at, look at ourselves. We have to look at like the, the, sort of the landscape, the inner landscape and see what's there. And the tone is often negative. Mm-hmm. It's often worrisome, you know, it's fear-based. It's hyper, the mind is hypervigilant. So like, you know, and I think it's Annie Lamott said like my neighbor, my, my mind is a bad neighborhood. I don't like to go there alone, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can all relate to that where, <laughs> um, you know, we become, we're so over-identified with our thoughts that when we go be alone with them, it, it, it's, you know, it can feel overwhelming. So, I, and again, it's that like this ability that we learn in meditation of sort of, of equanimity and of allowing, not identifying with our thoughts and allowing them to sort of move through um, rather than, you know, that we are like Pema Chodron says, you know, we are the, we are the sky, everything else is just the weather. Mm-hmm. So, but I think, my point is, and the reason that I love talking about that resistance to stillness is because I think resistance is always a good sign. 
whenever you hit resistance, you know, our natural impulse is like, Oh, I'm going to go the other way then. But actually when I see resistance, I'm like, Oh, it's go time. Like we've got work to do. Like that means I'm onto something. If I start resisting it, if my mind, my ego start throwing up reasons why I shouldn't do the thing I'm in, I'm a hundred percent in because I know that that's where the gold is. I know that like resistance, you know, it tells me that it's keeping me safe, but it's really keeping me small. And so anytime it shows up in your life, I think it's, it's a great opportunity to like head, look it in the eye and go right in that direction. And so you have the confidence to do that because you have stuck with your practice. It, oh. So you, so you know that you can walk through it. And I think it made me think while you're saying it, like, what about people who they come into stillness and there's just so many physical ob obstacles. Like I've, especially where there's trauma for people, they focusing on the breath or the anchor of their body, or there's, there's, it's just so difficult to sit and stay still in a purely somatic way. So I, that's sort of one question. I don't even know if that formed a question, but the other one that, that led on for me is, was there a moment and you may be still listening to Tara Brack and if that's what you're doing, then that's great. But, but is there a moment when you stop listening to recordings and you begin to walk into your own neighborhood alone and how did that go for you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I might answer that one first. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what the other one was. <laughs> well, it was just about like, what, what if, you know, I mean, the somatic difficulty and just, and just, you know, the breath and body experiences. Um, mm. Yeah, I, so I, um, I, I my practice definitely, you know, has progressed over, you know, I guess almost 10 years of regular practice. Um, and now I mostly practice um, mantra meditation. So I'm, you know, Rod Stryker is my teacher. So, you know, tantric meditation is my jam that feels like my home base and has for, probably four or five years now, um, I've been doing that pretty much exclusively for my own personal practice. And so it was definitely progressive. You know, my practice is definitely progressive and, um, and my experiences in meditation have been, you know, progressive. So I think that, um, yeah, there's, there's, I, I still don't have any kind of like, um, shame or dogma around guided meditation oh, because, no. no no me yeah. neither I, don't, I hope that didn't, yeah. yeah oh no and i wasn't implying that you were implying that at all no <laughs> i just um i love listening to my teacher talk so i definitely still get down with some guided meditations but yes there is something what a gift to have a self-contained practice what a gift to be able to just do it anywhere and i think that you know that should be all of our, you know, all of us should have that goal of, of having some, uh, some kind of a home base um, for that. And, and that's a perfect lead into to your point of, you know, what if people have, you know, feel anxious when they're watching the breath or they, a body scan is like hard because there's a lot of pain in the body or that kind of thing. And I, you know, one of the things that I write about in my book is just that I don't think that there's one practice, I don't think it's one size fits all. And I don't think anybody has the monopoly on the right way to meditate. And again, I think this idea, this dogmatic kind of approach doesn't serve us, particularly as, you know, people getting started or, or recommitting to a practice. And um, so I like to break it down into like five gateways. So um, breath, sound, sensation, visualization, and mantra, because I think that everybody has an entry point that's more easeful for them 
than other entry points. And, you know, for me, doing that sort of Vipassana style meditation, doing body scans, that was my, that was my gateway meditation. And it led into a many, you know, to this other kind of, or school of meditation, but, um, but I think it's really useful to be open to trying different, you know, different strokes for different folks. And like, what, what's your jam? Like find something that feels easeful in the beginning because it doesn't need to be uncomfortable or hard. Doesn't mean it's going to be like a total delight, but again, we need to take the emphasis off of like what's happening while we're sitting and look more towards the evidence of our lives in terms of like, is it working? Cause if you feel like your mind was busy or it wandered or that you did it wrong, that's normal. Mm. right like having a mind is sort of a prerequisite to meditation right like if we didn't have a mind we wouldn't need to do it so I like I like that they always say the the work is um not when your mind wanders off but it's it's going uh-oh and walking it back and that that's the thing because people think that you know they always think oh you need to empty your mind or think of nothing it's incredible what people think meditation is yeah yeah I love Sally Kempton says she calls it a meditation sit up and I'm, I just think yeah. that it's just oh, that's so nice. useful because mm. that's all we're doing. We're just doing reps, mm. you know, bringing it back. Mm. So, yeah. I, I'm wondering, as we're talking about this, you know, practicing meditation in this way, you have, you have three kids? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> They're so cute, too. I saw the video. Amazed. Three <laughs> kids. And so how do you how do you manage to fit this into your life? Have you got any? I mean, not that everybody's the same, but I just any secrets or any <laughs> secrets, any, any tips, any. Yeah. Any <laughs> tips or tricks? For, how have you have you have you how do you manage to keep this in your life? Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, there's a lot, I have a lot to say about this. And I think the first and foremost thing would just be that done is better than perfect. Mm. Um, I made that my sort of mission statement quite some time ago and it has served me well. Um, it's something that I think works so well in general, but particularly with a meditation practice, because if you're going to do something every single day, you have to accept that every single day, it's going to be different mm. and that's okay. Um, and so I think that it's this, I'm devoted, but flexible, you know, um, I show up every day and what it looks like every day might be slightly different. Um, and that, that is one of the most, you know, I think useful pieces of advice that I could offer anyone, which is just done is better than perfect. And if you show up, however small, however funky it feels like that is that you're winning that's the way forward. Um, and you know, making it a non-negotiable that, that it's just not something I debate within myself. Mm. I just like, I don't debate that I'm going to brush my teeth Mm. and it's the same with, with meditation. Um, and then I think with children, you know, what's really useful is if you have a parenting partner to enlist their support. And I did that from the beginning. And for my husband, it's been very easy because I'm a much more delightful person now that I've discovered meditation, you know, I mean, he's seen the benefits, he's experienced the benefits. And so asking him to, you know, give me 
my little chunk of time in the morning for that is it's no problem. And I'm lucky that I have his support, but now as my children are getting older, you know, they're seven, five and three now. And so they, but they've all grown up with me meditating and it's all in their awareness and they sometimes come and sit and they know if you want to come and sit, you're always welcome, but these are the boundaries. These are the rules. Like, you know, don't, don't cause a ruckus and sit and be quiet or lay and be quiet, whatever you want to do. Um, but I think it's a beautiful example to set for them. And as mothers, we often get trapped in this sort of like guilt loop about, oh, it's selfish. It's selfish for me to take time out for myself. Like that is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. (laughs) And I'm quite sure that it's something that was spoon fed to us by the patriarchy because it doesn't serve anyone, Mm -hmm. but patriarchy down but um no but really like it's not it just doesn't make any sense yeah um because when you think about it there's there's two major benefits that you're you know the people in your family get one is that like you are generally going to show up with more patience more compassion um but you know more presence like all of these the way that you show up for your family is no doubt enhanced through a regular meditation practice. A, B, you're giving them a powerful example of self-care. Mm-hmm. What better example could you give your children than saying, I am here to, I am doing this practice to keep myself healthy and well and balanced and let me show you how it's done because your mm-hmm. children are watching. Yeah. And I really believe that, um, that I'm setting an example and whether they're, whether they're interested in, you know, becoming regular meditators as they get older or not, I don't know, but I, you know, it's something that I actually feel like is giving them an advantage. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just, I, I think that that is something that we all need to work through is this guilt around self-care. I so agree. We need to model this stuff. You know, what we do is so much more impressionable and important than what we say. And when I think back, when I look at my self-care habits, you know, I think I look back to what was modeled for me or more when I think about when I look back or when I think about my natural inclination or thoughts about self-care, I look back at what was modeled for me and I think, okay, I've got to make choices for my children, because we're making choices for our children and their children and in the world. And I just think that's so, that's so empowering and are so important and so inspiring because yeah, those aren't the messages. No, not the messages. No. And I think like, if we want to take it one step further um, and kind of go back to this, you know, connection to source, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you, if you feel like, Um, that you are some expression of the divine or God or goddess or the universe or whatever. Um, If you can acknowledge your own divinity and if you see yourself as sacred, then Mm -hmm. caring for yourself, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, energetically is so much easier. And I think that if we can bring that sense of reverence, um, you know, to ourselves and we recognize that within ourselves. And then it's like, then we recognize it in, you know, the the natural environment. We recognize it in the food that we're eating. We recognize it in the way that we're interacting with people, you know, um, because we're remembering the connect that we are all, you know, connected and that, 
and that um, we're all like little drops in the ocean divine, right? Mm -hmm. And that I think brings more, more harmony and more space for joy. And, you know, I take that a step further and also go into like, you know, with work, um, with, you know, the things that I feel like I'm here to do in this lifetime, you know, the ways that I can be of service, you know, I believe that like our own, everybody's unique abilities and strengths are just like gifts on loan from the divine for this Mm -hmm. life. And so what are you going to do with those gifts? And how can you be a good steward of those gifts? And, you know, self-doubt comes from thinking about our small self. And I think, you know, yoga or meditation, you know, these practices can help us connect with this sense of expansiveness and the infinite possibilities that, you know, we hold within us. Um, And so we, instead of thinking like, who am I to do this thing or that thing, you start thinking like, who am I not to? Mm. Because you're divine. And it's whether it's, so whether it's like your creative expression in the world, the way that you can be of service in the world or the way that you care for yourself, you know, it's this idea that like your life is a gift. And I think that, you know, for me, you know, I love the title of your podcast because to me that sort of just sums up like, how can we live like we love ourselves? And it's like by treating ourselves as something sacred. Mm. And then self-care is like, well, of course, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it's the natural result or it's the natural next right yeah. step. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. So that's why I don't have any problem with showing up for it every day. <laughs> oh, it's so good. That's no, been love, so I inspiring. Devoted, so inspiring. Devoted, wait, devoted, but with flexibility or something. Devoted, but exactly. flexible. That is my freaking new mantra. Yeah. That yeah. is my new mantra. Well and truly, that just sits so beautifully with me, with my sensibility, with where I'm challenged in life. It's just fantastic. That's and I love the non-negotiable too, where you just yeah. do it. You, you don't, there's so many other things we just do. So build it in, babe. You're going to, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and I mean, the benefits, yeah, the benefits are huge. Mm-hmm. The idea that your children are watching that and then even coming into that space. They were so cute on this video that that's, uh, that's on YouTube, but some, I, I don't know what it oh, was. Yeah. The little meditate. Was it oh, a little so cute? Yeah. And their <laughs> her kids are behind and they're on. And then they, you can see that they're used to it. You can see that they, yeah. they're like, I know what she's doing. They're still wiggly kids. And you know, there, there's nothing um, they have normal about these children. They're not like sort of obedient. No, 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 they're, they're gorgeously sort of even, uh, you know, wonderful, but then they, but they're into it. They're like, yeah. cool. Okay. I'm going to drop into this with mom. And you could, you could see they completely understood it. It wasn't you faking it for the, you know, 40 seconds on the- No, no, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> sedating, sedating them for- <laughs> <laughs> um, No, I think, but I think like that, that's the, another great point um, is that, you know, these are actual practical tools that, you know, I remember the first time my son, who's my oldest, um, had like a temper tantrum. And when I had temper tantrums as a kid, you know, I was spicy. I was a spicy child with like a lot of will, a very willful and spirited. And so I got sent to my room a lot. And, <laughs> um, and what that did for me was like, just, I knew how to go up. I only knew how to go up. So for me, it was just like escalate, 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 explode. And I would get like grounded for like two weeks at a time because I just didn't know how to simmer down. And I remember when my son, you know, started having tantrums at that age, like, and I went, 
oh, I don't want him to be like me. I don't want him to be like, you know, 19 before he, or 20 or 21 or whatever, however, whatever age I was when I was like, oh, I can manage my own state. Like that was such a revelation to me. And I thought that's something I really want to give my kids is this tool to know that they have agency over their own state. So whether it's, you know, meditation or like my little, my little boy last night, I was inviting them to calm down for story. And I'm like, everybody, please do something that will help you calm your energy and transition into story time. And he, he sits on the couch and he goes, excuse me, girls, excuse me. I'm about to do some box breathing. You know, and I was just like, yes. yes. Like it feels like such a victory when you like, offer this to your kids over and over and over again. And I say that because it's like, as parents, you know, we all, we have to, it's, it's sort of the same where it's like, it's a practice. Like you're offering the thing up over and over and over again, and you might not actually see it come to fruition for some time, but what a great gift to give them. You mm -hmm. know, I love that you gave them a choice. I just think because everybody is going to be different in what they need to do. And you may have another child who drops out when they're, mm -hmm. they're not, you know, this, there's the escalate, but then there's the, the hide under the covers kid too. Yeah. And, and so we, we need, and again, taking the shame away or this perfection, what do you do to make yourself feel better? And, you know, what are your tools? So, oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Golly, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously meditation, uh, asana, pranayama, like those, those are sort of like the, the core things. But, you know, Ayurveda has been such a huge, mm -hmm. such a huge, you know, bonus for me in terms of like filling that out. And, um, you know, there are practices that I do every day, you know, whether it's tongue scraping, dry brushing with like with essential oils and then, you know, warm oil massage in the shower before, before, you know, soaping and all of that. And like even those little tiny rituals that I do every day, I think contribute again to, they have a cumulative effect. Right. Mm -hmm. and so it's probably not just one thing that I do. Um, it's, a, it's all of the little choices that I make. And maybe that's what makes it, um, you know, achievable is that yeah. it's all, it's not just one thing, but it's a lot of little things. Um, you know, and I also notice the things that I don't do, like the things that don't make me feel good, you know, um, that, that I've just choose to either do very little love or not do at all. And I pay attention to what I'm feeding myself. Mm. Right. So what am I feeding myself physically? What am I feeding myself mentally? What am I feeding myself emotionally? Like, what are my inputs? And again, it comes back to this sense of agency of like, we can't always control everything, but we can control our inputs. And I think that that's something that's been useful to remember during this very strange year um, where our nervous systems are very taxed, yeah. you know, and um, what are the ways that we can support ourselves through that? And I think like even these little things, which I'm sure Chari, you could drop knowledge on, on me about even you know, to the nth degree, but just like even doing a, a warm oil massage, mm. gosh, that's grounding. Isn't it? It's just, you know, it's like simple little things that, you know, have such impact on our state. Um, but also laughter. I can't, I, you know, like, I just can't say enough about that. Like, as far as like, what are the things that I do? I am always looking for a laugh. 
you know, I'm always looking for like, what are the moments of pleasure? What, like, it's great to talk about all of these, you know, practices that we, that we do, but I think it can also verge into this, like, you know, territory of like being austere and I totally agree. You know, yeah, yeah, I'm also like, well, I love to watch TV. That makes me laugh. I love to read, you know, I I read a lot of highbrow stuff and I read a lot of lowbrow stuff. Like I find, you know, like just whatever this, these moments of pleasure um, and letting myself laugh and letting myself have those moments of, of pleasure, because I think that um, there's just so much nourishment and healing in in that and and I think many of us in this like space uh, this yoga space can become very like hype I don't know almost like so dogmatic and strict in our mm-hmm. approach that it's also like hey you know like loosen up <laughs> yeah. a little bit of fun too sure. like, that's kind of what we're here to joy to do is like enjoy this life like the human experience I think is yes we're here to like to do like to fit, to work through things and to like, you know, serve a purpose. And we all, I believe have our Dharma, but also cake, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) like, I'm with you sister, (laughs) like, you know, like your soul doesn't get to eat cake. Like, so eat eat the cake, (laughs) you know, like enjoy these human pleasures Mm. um and I think that's part of what I love about tantra too is like it's for householders it's for people living in the world yeah it's not monastic you know in in terms of its prescriptions and I think that that is such a such an underrated um approach is moderation you know So what do you guys do? What do you do? What am I missing out on? (laughs) Well, a a lot of that. I mean, that's, that's it. It's those, these little things that you accumulate. And I loved you saying you're controlling or controlling, or you're, you're having agency over It's a much better way than saying controlling your inputs because you can choose those and have that little bit of discernment, which is like nourishing, nourishing spark of joy or whatever, Mm -hmm. and then not. And a lot of it is, I guess a lot of the, a lot of Ayurveda or yoga is actually, what can you get rid of? Like, what, what are you not doing? Not serving you. And, and that's a load off, which is quite nice. Cause there's always so many things you can do. Mm-hmm. I think we have to be careful in a year like this, where we're on the internet, just like doing courses and, you know, but just to make those choices and to leave that space is, mm-hmm. is nice. So uh, I thought what you said, that's beautiful, but the, but not taking yourself too seriously, I think is huge. Yeah. Absolutely huge. It is huge. And I'm so glad you brought that up too, because I do think like you were saying, I think many people, when we think about yoga or we think about Ayurveda, or we think about even just taking care of ourselves, the first thing that most of us think about is discipline. And then all of a sudden we're spinning off into, you know, like this self-flagellating feeling of, you know, you don't take my cake, you know, don't take my (laughs) stuff away, you know? And I, and it's, Rob Svoboda says that the the freedom that we that we're looking to experience is is found in that agency is found in that ability to make those choices for ourselves to to say no and yes and you know so many of us especially we talk about this year we we've built this subconscious uh, 
reaction, I suppose, to the things around us, especially when there's uncertainty, which is something we're all dealing with. This this gathering, this, you know, this sort of hoarding, this, this, I just have to say yes to everything because it's something that means that I don't have to deal with the uncertainty, the vastness. Mm-hmm. And we're overindulging. We're doing ourselves a disservice. Mm-hmm. And so that freedom does come from just being able to let it go well I think overindulging is like such a great like we often think about it in terms of food and drink and whatnot but um I actually think that like we're overindulging on like media everything social media news all of that like we are just like if if you could have gout like from (laughs) from like social media like we would all have it you know yes um, and yeah. that's becoming more prevalent. I don't know if you've heard of that, but if, if you've heard gout that out in the news, gout is actually <laughs> starting to reemerge as a, a modern just day. Said, yeah, has gout today. Like yeah. his big toe. I just it's, saw a picture of it. And Who? it makes a friend of mine. A friend. Yeah, so just a middle-aged guy, but it's like, oh my gosh. It's beginning to reemerge as a modern day concern. And that Mm -hmm. makes perfect sense when we think about how much we are indulging, not just in food, like you said, Caitlin, Mm -hmm. in everything, in information, in ideas, in, you know. And also working hard. And I think think the three of us, I don't know whether you're employed somewhere, but I'm assuming you've got this little gig that you're running yourself. You know, you've written your book and you've got your, and there's the temptation there where time gets melted and there's very little boundaries on, you don't go to work and check into the office. And so we can always be on and always be alert. And when are you working hard enough to make that happen? And it's, it's, it's very dangerous. It's Whereas, a slippery slope. Yeah. It is. Well, but, it is. But, but we've been conditioned, you know, yeah. for more. Yeah. And um, another like sort of little you know, mantra or mission statement that I like to have in my head is like that I'm in pursuit of less. Mm-hmm. I don't want, I don't want more. I want it less, but better. Yeah. You know, I want, I would rather have fewer, better things than Lovely. more of everything. And that's a real, um, it's a real, like, it's an unwinding, I think of like, of a samskara that we culturally have, which is more, more, more hustle, hustle, hustle. And I'm like, anti-hustle pro flow. Like that's where I'm heading. And this year has for me been like a very big lesson in how overcommitted I've been in the Mm. past and how deeply I want to change that because, um, you know, I've been involved in my husband and I co-own two hospitality businesses in town. And, um, and then I do this work, which I'm so passionate about and have three kids. And so it's just a lot. And I think that like, sometimes we have to like overeat on life and have that horrible feeling where you're like, I can't move <laughs> to, you know, to, to go, I don't ever want to feel that way again. And I, and I think that that's on offer for us, you know, as we kind of come up on the end of the year, it's like, this is a great time to reflect and look at the things, look, you know, look at the ways that maybe you consumed things that, you know, overconsumed things, whether it's information or, you know, food or alcohol or whatever it is. Um, like, what are the, what are the ways that you, you know, want to, want to do things differently next year. And I think focusing on how we want to feel is such a powerful way of, of setting goals and intentions rather than having this like outward, um, you know, I love Danielle Laporte, like where she's, she's all about 
core desired feelings. And that that is the way that you should set goals because that delivers you to the destination of your feeling rather than a particular outcome, which may not have the, the feeling that you're chasing associated with it. Mm. Um, and I think it's incredibly powerful to look back and go, how do I not want to feel like, what are the mm. things I'm not going to eat? What are the things that I'm not going to consume um, as we look forward and without judgment, you know, mm. without judgment. But um, there was something else I was going to say, what was it about the overconsumption? I can't remember. Doing less in yeah. pursuit of less. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, like, as we kind of start to wrap up, because honestly, I think we could just sit here and talk to you for the rest of the day. You guys are such a delight. The thing that's coming to me is, and we've touched on it a bit, this has been a really interesting year for a lot of us. And there's there's a distinct feeling for me that perhaps more so than many other years, this year is going to leave an impression. It's going to leave... Um, it's going to leave a mark. (laughs) And so I wonder based on your experience, and I'm thinking back to the 17 year old in Varanasi, and I'm thinking back to the, you know, the 37, I think you said, or 38 year old mother of three based on all those many years of experience and laughter, what, what would you, what would you offer as an invitation to, folks for, you know, this moment forward or for the year ahead? Oh, wow. No pressure. (laughs) No pressure at all. You got all sorts of goodness in you. I'm just asking for another little nugget of it, I suppose. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that has served me very well this year is, is, you know, something we talked about earlier, which is just this idea that like, we are not our circumstances, Mm. you know, we are not these things that are happening to us or around us. And it's not about disconnecting from them. It's just about being able to be with them and not needing to escape them. And also trusting in the transience, you know, that this is, this is life. Mm. And as much as we want to control it, and hold it tight and keep it, you know, like we want to just cling to those moments of joy and dispel the moments of discomfort as quickly as possible, which is why we reach for things that can alter our state, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when when we can train ourselves in this practice of, of just being with it without having to change it and without identifying with it, that has served me so well this year because, you know, we've navigated all kinds of craziness, like as a culture, as a community, but also, you know, within our own family, like we were in hospitality, our businesses were closed. We bought a second business two weeks before the lockdown. We had two businesses that were closed for six months and one that we needed to renovate with no, you know, no cash flow. So you look at like those very practical things. Like I think sometimes these conversations, it's like, we're talking about spiritual things. I'm also talking about money. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like we're also talking about paying the rent mm-hmm. and um, like real life householder stuff. Mm-hmm. And the reason, you know, people always ask me like, how do you do so much? And like, aren't you stressed and aren't you worried? And I'm like, I'm actually just not because what does that accomplish? Mm-hmm. Does it change anything? Does it help me show up like as, as a, you know, the best version of myself when I'm scared and fearful or worried? Is it a good use of my energy? It's just not. And I think that, you know, again, 
it's one of those things that we practice in meditation is we, we practice creating a little bit of distance between our thoughts or our feelings or our sensations. And when we can bring that out into life, I think that it makes our experience of life so much more enjoyable because you start to see that these things happen, they come and they go. And also joy is always there for us. It's always there. And that's what we're seeking. I think through yoga is like, we're digging, we're digging to like recover joy. But the secret is that it's already, it's already there. It's always there. We just have to be awake to it. So I don't know if that helps, but I think that has that perspective and that sort of way of, um, of interacting with the circumstances of life has helped me because I, I don't want to miss a moment of, you know, the beauty and the gifts of this life. And I think sometimes we distract ourselves from it by worrying about what's not right. And that's the way our mind is designed, right? It's designed to be hypervigilant, but so often we miss the, we miss the juice and the gold and the joy of just being. So that's what I would offer. <laughs> it's lovely. It's fantastic. And I can, and in, in listening to, you know, all that you've just shared with us, I can see that running through your life. I can see that you, I can see that you've been all of that, you know? And so I just, this conversation has been amazing. It's been beautiful. And I knew that it would, cause I just, <laughs> oh, I just love you. You're so great. Likewise, it's Mutual Admiration Society. Oh, so thank you so much for giving us some of your time today, your precious time for sharing some of your amazing wisdom with folks. We will share everything we can about you with our audience and and this conversation as well, which does very much feel like a gift. Thank you. It was such a a pleasure to spend time with you both. And um, what an awesome way to spend a Friday afternoon. Can we do it again next week? I know. (laughs) Oh, I hope you enjoyed that one as much as we did. Could you tell I was having a great time? Both of us did. And luckily enough for us, Kayla doesn't live too far away from us. And so I've since had the good fortune of getting to meet her with meet up with her for lunch. And I'm pretty sure I've made a friend for life. And, you know, I highly suggest that you check out her website and her books and her app for lots of relatable insights and tools for living a life that is true to you. And speaking of living a life that's true to you, we've got another amazing conversation coming up next time. This wonderful woman's story is almost too crazy to believe, but the wisdom that she shared with us has definitely changed us forever. And so we cannot wait to bring her story and her work to you. So be sure to tune in for that one. Or even better, why not subscribe to the podcast so that you can get a little notification when that episode is ready for prime time. And before I let you go, if you are a yoga teacher and you're interested in expanding your skills and your knowledge and your offerings to your students and your community, consider checking out my Ayurveda for Yoga Teachers course, which kicks off in April. It's an opportunity to learn and to practice and to create something that truly allows you to stand out as a teacher and to support your students and yourself in a new and powerful way. And so check out the link in the description or jump onto my website for more information and to book your spot on the training. Thank you once again for listening and for all of your support. 
Until next time, take care of yourselves. Namaste.